Well, we'll go from one end of the walk of my neck to the other, won't we? Yes, we will. How many times have you heard, you're not from here, are you? (laughs) You're not from here. How many times perhaps you in the audience have said to someone else, you're not from here, are you? And I think over and over about those who are natives, those who are newcomers, and each, each person that said, no, I'm not from here, but I got here as fast as I could. <laughs> and several years ago, we had a um, bumper sticker show up on a car that said native. We saw him first in Florida and admit it. Um, the first one I saw was on a person's car whose parents didn't move here until 1940. When I would stop at Marlowe's Grocery Store, which is now, of course, Frank's Restaurant, Frank and Faye Marlowe, I would ask Miss Marlowe a question, and Miss Marlowe would say, well, I think it was so-and-so, 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 but you know, I only moved here in 1949. (laughs) And then she deferred, you need to ask Alberta, because Alberta Lashcock-Quattlebaum grew up here and, of course, was a founder of this church. So I think over and over about deferring to locals, learning from locals, but also even those that consider themselves natives may not have been here as many generations as you expect. And what we did that year where I saw more and more of those native bumper stickers appearing on cars, which in many ways means I'm from here and you're not... We decided to do for our annual float for the 4th of July, we decided that we would have a parade float with all the children, our two boys and their friends and children from church, Pauley's Island Presbyterian Church, and we dressed them up as Waccamaw tribe members, and we had a big sign on each side of the float that said, Pauley's Island True Natives. Because at some point, if so-and-so didn't come till 49, and so-and-so didn't come till 40, and so-and-so became before World War I, and so-and-so came before the American Civil War, well, then how about the people that fought in the Revolution, and how about the early colonists? Where does it end? Or should I say, where does it begin? And it begins with those Waccamaw Indians on the Waccamaw Neck. It begins with the Santee Tribe on the Santee River. It begins with the Sandpit Indians on the Sandpit River. The Winyah Tribe on Winyah Bay. Are you understanding that Native Americans named that geographic location first? And then they took their name from the geographic location. The Winyah Indians, University of South Carolina professors years ago understood that Winyah means the bend. And I have to do my arms like that, it's just automatic, but I hope it helps you remember. (laughs) Think of Winyah Bay, five rivers coming together and flowing in and creating Winyah Bay just below Georgetown, but making a major turn around the bend of Hobcaw Barony and emptying into the ocean. People of the Bend became known as the Winyah tribe. And those that lived along the Waccamaw took their name from the river that was so named by the Native American tribe, coming and going. And as a Waccamaw elementary student answered my question one day, he said, Waccamaw elementary got its name because students are always going and they're always coming. But I gave him half a credit. Why? Because he remembered coming and going. 
And I think you can guess it's not the people coming and going on the river, but it is the tide. It is the high tide and the low tide. And we are influenced in the South Carolina low country by the weather, sunrise and sunset, by the cold weather, our frigid snows we had in January and February. I know some of y'all were making fun of us, and we just turned to you and we said, wait till hurricane season. And when you talk about how hot it is, we turn and we say, oh, it's not the heat, it's the humidity. And haven't we been fortunate this week to experience beautiful days and then a couple of really humid days that get our sweat glands going. Native Americans had a propensity to live in the Carolina Low Country as the first tribes spent time in the area and then moved inland seasonally, not daily, but seasonally. They were nomadic in some sense. They came out to the salt marshes. They spent very little time on the barrier islands. But like any group of people, as long as their needs were met, whether it was deer, whether it was eventually growing things like squash, pumpkins. But think about this, if their needs are met for both food and shelter, because when you're poor, what are your two immediate needs? What are your two basic needs as a human being? Food and shelter. And the Native Americans continue to live in this area because those two immediate needs were easily met. Food is obvious but then also shelter. And the Native Americans, particularly the Waccamaw tribe of this area, all the way up the Waccamaw River to the North Carolina line, formerly the All Saints Parish, all the way from the state line down to Winyah Bay, their needs were met, and what did they build their houses out of? Not animal skins, not teepees like on the Great Plains, but instead wooden houses. Their roofs thatched with palmetto, and pine, the sides, wood logs, wood shaving, or not shaving, but bark. Think about it, wooden houses, what they call log houses. Native Americans were trading a great deal with one another, with other tribes, tribes as far south as Charleston, as far inland as the Cherokees in the upper part of the state. How do our archaeologists know that? Because we continue to find projectile points made of stone. And if y'all found out, we don't have a lot of stone in the low country. We got a lot of sand, we got a lot of mud, and we have a lot of humidity. But we do not have a great deal of stone. So it was that trading both for weapons to improve hunting as well as the trading of foodstuffs. Native Americans had oysters and clams and shrimp, just like y'all. And then they traded sometimes for animals or foodstuffs or even metal, much less stone, that was beginning to come to this area by the 15th century. A rumor persists, although we cannot prove it through documentation, but y'all know in 1526, the site of the first attempted European settlement was created somewhere on the Carolina or the Georgia coast. And for a long time, historians and archeologists believed it could be at the southern tip of the Waccamaw Neck at the land the Native Americans called Hobcall, between the waters. I love saying it's like a Native American word for peninsula. But if I'm not careful and I say peninsula, third grader's going to say, yes, I remember what Hobcall means. It means chinchilla. <laughs> the land between the chinchillas. And I'm like, why would you say chinchilla? We don't even have chinchillas here. That's what my face said. And then I said, tell me what you mean. Because that's what we say. 
would, should say to children. Tell me what you mean. What's going on in that head? Bordered by water on three sides, chinchilla. <laughs> so I'm trying to say peninsula, peninsula. Native Americans in 1526, somewhere along the Carolina, the Georgia coast, if not at Hobcall, perhaps on the, the Georgia coast, according to leading archaeologists, 1526, the first attempted European settlement in North America by, and it just happened to be by the Spanish. And they brought ships, one ship, um, well, shorter version, those ships carried men, women, and children, carried with them horses and hogs, and foodstuffs, and tools. It came not to be a military fort, but instead it came to be a settlement, the first attempted European settlement. They came in August, and based on what we were just talking about, about the natural environment, that's not always a good month to start over in South Carolina. It also may not be the best time of year to plant your crops. August to October. The settlement only lasted from August to October. What had been thousands of individuals was down to a very few 100. They were able to send word, a ship came and, and came for them, and the settlement ended. The settlement ended as soon as it had started. And as the Spanish men, women, and children left, they also left their horses and they left their hogs. And not necessarily any of the descendants of those hogs are still living because Native Americans were easily able to get those and eat those. But feral swine from domestic hogs still exist on the Waccabaw Neck, just like a feral cat and a feral dog. There are still wild pigs, but the story of South Carolina's wild horses is even stronger because even here on the Waccamaw Neck, but particularly along our sea islands on the Carolina coast, a horse that became known as a marsh tacky when first observed by English permanent settlers, 1670, they could see the horses easily on the marsh. They could have been called woods tackies, but it was harder to see them in a woods area, so instead they saw them from the marsh. And I love thinking about the origin of the word tacky, and it applies to some of us women, right? T-A-C-K-Y, it's a word we use from time to time. But a marsh tacky is now officially a breed of horse. It's our South Carolina heritage horse, and tacky is an old English word for common. This was just a common wild horse that these first colonists, these English colonists, saw as they came to the Carolina coast. Just a common horse. And it was also a very small horse. It was a very sure-footed horse. And over time, it was a horse on which you could capture, break, and ride, and shoot off its back years later, making that breed of horse continually popular into the 20th century. But we're only at 1670. Charleston, of course, Charlestown was founded in 1670, then Beaufort, and then Georgetown. We are the third oldest port. And notice how all three of them were port cities. Just like Boston, just like Baltimore, port cities were very, very important, and then the backwoods were settled later. Here we think of, and from South Carolina, if you go as far inland from Charleston as Walterboro, woo, that's the back country. And let's don't even talk about going to Andrews. That's way in, way in. 
Everything that was happening was happening along the coast for so long. And as long as your needs are met along the coast, like in and around Georgetown, in and around the Waccamaw Neck, there wasn't a need yet to go inland. And why was the Carolina colony founded? To make money for the King of England. Everybody was welcome. So after Charleston and Beaufort and Georgetown, as this Georgetown district, a part of the Carolina colony, was being created in this area, Georgetown um, district, as we'll say, was really a place of speculation. Those very first landowners either, either received their land as a gift from King Charles II, and some of those gifts were baronies. Then also there were king's grants, and then there were royal grants, and then there were purchases. And along the Waccamaw Neck, one of the first, the first two groups of people that really were land speculators. Today we'd say, oh, he's in the real estate business. Percival Pauley, John, Ann, William, Alston. One name you don't hear often unless it's on a brochure or at a book or a place on a map. There are not many Pauley family members left to carry on that last name. But we do still hear the Alston name quite a bit. And we hear it in the history along the Waccamaw Neck as well. But the Pauley and the Alston presence was um, strong throughout the early 18th century as well as the 19th century. And as they speculated for land that they just might flip, to use today's terminology, what were they looking for in the low country? They were looking for high ground. Think about the bluffs anywhere along the Waccamaw River. Think about the times perhaps you've gone to Brook Green and you traveled up on the northern trekker and gone up to Laurel Hill Plantation where the rice mill chimney is located, one of the highest places on the Waccamaw Neck. As you look from that bluff, you look across at Sandy Island, the largest riverine island on the East Coast. I just like saying that. It sounds so smart. The largest riverine island on the East Coast. There are no bridges to Sandy Island. That's a whole nother lecture. But it is an island, not a barrier island at the edge of the sea, but obviously in the middle of the river. And today dominated by about 1,200 acres owned by African Americans who were former slaves on plantations of Sandy Island. So you had a bluff at a place like Brook Green. You had a bluff at a place like Hobcaw Barony. There are bluffs along the Santee River elsewhere. Those are important because if you're living in the low country where zero, one, two, three, and perhaps the lot that you live on is maybe 12, ooh, maybe 19. I live at 19 feet above sea level. And what fun it is to come home from the mountains in one day and go from 6,000 feet at Sassafras in the mountains of South Carolina and come from the mountains to the sea and come down to zero and touch our toe in the ocean. The Georgetown District began right away as an agricultural community. As people began to consider moving to this area, leaving the Charleston area, or coming directly from England, from France, from Germany, even from Santo Domingo, from Haiti in the 1790s, German, Jewish, everybody was welcome as long as they could help make money for the King of England. The Carolina colony had the largest Jewish population in the nation. Let me rephrase that. 
Carolina had the largest Jewish population in America until the 1820s, so before the Revolutionary War and after the Revolutionary War. And why so many Jews in South Carolina? Everybody who could help make money for the King of England was welcome. And so many Jewish persons spoke international languages. They knew the um, selling and trading of monies, of monetary value. They also could set up businesses and be the brokers and the go-between between agriculture and the royal government. The largest Jewish population in the country until the 1820s when what state surpassed us? Take a wild guess. New York. Absolutely, New York. If you stop and think also about the development of Georgetown as a port, we became a port of entry very early. By the 1730s, we were a port of entry, which meant that whatever was leaving the area of the colony around Georgetown could go from that port directly to a foreign country. It didn't have to go to England. So as we began to develop agricultural, um, excuse me, as we began to to develop exports. Some of the first exports were pork, beef, and lumber, and all sorts of forest products. So sap, resin, tar, turpentine, but also huge virgin cypress trees, virgin longleaf pines, and also live oaks. And if you're thinking about, wow, that's not much planking, it was the elbows, it was the joints where the limbs met the trunk that were so very important to England's desire to be the world's leader in shipbuilding. And of course, according to the English, they had the best navy. According to the English, they had the best navy. And as an English colony, we sent them raw products like timber, manufactured products from timber, as well as beef and pork. And as you visit the South Carolina Maritime Museum and study those early exports, you see that as they cleared those large fields of pine trees, then as they cleared those large swamps of cypress trees, they began to consider this wide open space for agriculture. And rice was planted very early in our history. But we also, in the upland areas, planted rice, just like wheat and corn and oats. And it was pretty successful, but something else was even more successful as an export product. And I bet most of you know it was indigo. And we love to say that Eliza Lucas Pinckney, Eliza Lucas, still single, was the first to grow indigo. She wasn't the first to grow it. There had been a few men that had grown it before her. She was the first person to be successful in growing indigo, experimenting year after year. And then by the 1740s, indigo was a very important crop. And why blue? Why this plant about five feet high? Well, or about four, ten and three quarters. About my height. <laughs> about five feet high, that plant that was grown in upland fields and then harvested and then soaked. And what tea does to a vat of water, indigo did to a vat. A dye came out, and of course the blue dye was so desirable by the English because after all, they had the world's best navy, <laughs> navy blue, royal blue, and blue was simply the most color fast of all colors, highly desirable for a number of things. Yellow fades, red fades, blue is true blue. 
the Waccamaw Neck's first real wealth, as well as the, the town of Georgetown, was based on indigo. And as indigo became more and more successful for us as a colony, there was almost what we think of as a bounty on the indigo. So Great Britain was buying all of our indigo. And if you grew it, you could sell it. And if you could sell it, you could easily become what we would consider a millionaire. Simultaneously, pork, cattle, lumber, um, naval stores. And you know, one reason we call timber naval stores is because our timber was going to the English Navy. It's always ironic to think about large ships made out of Carolina timber later turned their cannons on us during the Revolutionary War. And by the time of the Revolutionary War, Georgetown County alone was producing, excuse me, um, over time, by the 1850s, Georgetown County was producing more rice than any other place in the world except the area around Calcutta, India. And the next time you take a tour in Charleston, they're going to tell you Charleston exported more rice than any other place in the world except Calcutta, India. And before you stand up and say, uh-uh, uh-uh, Lee said. But what did we slightly say differently? Georgetown area was growing it, and who was exporting it? Charleston. By the height of rice cultivation, following the American Revolutionary War, millions of pounds were grown by individuals on the Waccamaw Neck. Combined millions and millions of rice grown on the Waccamaw Neck. And by 1850, the port of Georgetown was being bypassed. Rice planters were no longer buying townhomes in Georgetown. They bought townhomes in Charleston. They produced the rice on their large plantations because the large rice planters continually were buying out the smaller rice planters. As land came available, they bought up any productive land and any human labor, enslaved labor that came available. Profits from indigo and, of course, rice were reinvested into more land and more enslaved laborers. And why do we say enslaved laborers instead of slaves? It's simply to remind us that those were human beings. Kidnapped, purchased, yes, sold in West Africa by their own people, but we still contributed to this interesting legacy, not only in South Carolina, but in our nation also, during rice cultivation and during its height, there was a persistent move toward closing the international slave trade. The rumor was it would be in 1808. And during the last four years, 1804 to 1808, 75,000 West Africans came into the port of Georgetown and were auctioned before the international slave trade closed. And who was buying most of those newly brought slaves from Africa, particularly from ports in West Africa? Cotton planters. Rice planters were like, we're good. We don't need any more in the slave population. We're about 80% black right now. The black majority, an important book to read. 
but cotton planters had just experienced the invention of the cotton gin. So they were moving west from Carolina to Georgia to Mississippi, Alabama, with a few enslaved laborers and a fairly small piece of land. You could become a millionaire, whereas rice planters needed a great number of acres and a great number of slaves in human bondage. Georgetown County grew wealthy. Georgetown County's large rice planters grew wealthier. And as they bought out those small rice planters, they built their own mills on their own plantations. And they built slaves, built the bricks, created the bricks that created the, the rice mills. And then slaves built the schooners, the semi-truck of yesteryear. So from those rice mills, those schooners went directly to Charleston. And the rice plantations on the Waccamaw Neck are an important part of our history and important economically as well as morally. Last week I gave a lecture that will stay with me for a long time as I was doing the research to present on two sisters, the Grimke sisters of Charleston. In the 1830s they turned from their life in Charleston as daughters of wealthy plantation owner, wealthy um, individual, a judge, a jurist in Charleston, large homes, education typical for a young lady at that time. They joined the Quaker church in Charleston because Quakers were already involved in abolition. And then they moved to Philadelphia to become not only more active in the Quaker church that allowed women to be ministers. Make that note. Just kidding, John. Also... And also keep in mind that the Grimke sisters became the first women to openly and actively speak in public against slavery for abolition and for women's rights. And you know, we're still thinking about all of these issues. And even as I was putting my thoughts down on paper last Saturday, what happened in Buffalo, New York? a racially motivated murder of 10 people, how many others were wounded, and then how many others will forever be traumatized. It's important when we speak of victims, isn't it, to remember all of those, even people that weren't on site last Saturday at the one grocery store in that community were traumatized by the fact that their grocery store is closed. The lives of individuals, not just the story of the economics, of naval stores and the history of the ports and the but the individuals and the families and then also looking into 1865 when abolition did occur on the Waccamaw Neck. By that time many of the fields had laid fallow for a number of years. Rice cultivation began in earnest with fields that had been um, damaged through neglect during the war, many of the plantation owners had fled inland or up into the North Carolina mountains and did not have their land restored. Sometimes it was several years before they did um, claim that new allegiance to the United States of America and reclaim their properties. 1865 was a year of rebuilding and also rebuilding agriculture. And rice was planted after the war. A lot of people think about agriculture and rice cultivation, but we continued to plant rice for 50 more years after the American Civil War, but in an ever-declining market. 
And many of you already know or could guess the unavailability of free labor was the biggest economic difficulty. But also Texas, Louisiana, Arkansas began to plant rice in their states using heavy modern machinery due to the invention of the steam pump. So they could irrigate upland fields where we had depended on the push of the tide, pushing the fresh waters into the rice field. So Texas, Louisiana, and Arkansas opened up this huge new type of rice cultivation. So even if you on the Waccamaw Neck, the son or daughter or grandson of Joshua John Ward at Brook Green, who had owned 1,100 slaves, and the year he died, 1852, had produced over a million pounds of rice, even if you had a good year, the price of rice on the market because of so much being produced in the West. In an ever-declining market, the unavailability of free labor, competition from western states, and what I used to say, a series of hurricanes. And then you get to know Dr. Carrie Mock from the University of South Carolina, who, among other things, is a weather historian. And it, it was an article about him in the newspaper several years ago, and it had his phone number in the article. <sighs> so I... And back then we used telephones, you know, now we would email. But I called him and I asked him a question and he and I would talk back and forth. And he had been studying weather events on the Waccamaw Neck. And a big part of his joy was a couple of years before that he had discovered the weather records of Reverend Alexander Glenny, who was brought to the Waccamaw Neck to be a tutor to the children of... Um, a man we know as the owner of Hagley Plantation, Plowden Weston. And so it was that Reverend, El excuse me, Mr. Alexander Glennie came to the area, was keeping good daily records, was teaching, and also was such a good churchgoer that the community encouraged Alexander Glennie to go to seminary, and he became an Episcopal rector. And before during and after the Civil War, Reverend Alexander Glennie practiced, or excuse me, served as rector here on the Waccamaw Neck. And as you read about him, he was an extraordinary person, and he was also interested in weather, heat, humidity, hurricanes, freshets, and droughts. And I know exactly what a freshet is now. I read about it, couldn't quite understand it until we had the flood from Hurricane Florence. Think about all that fresh water coming from north of us, that watershed coming down, flooding Conway, and then coming down through and filling the rice fields, but because of those wetlands not flooding Georgetown as anticipated. And if you were a store owner, merchant, had an office on Front Street, you had already hired moving vans and taken every single thing out of your store on Front Street. 2017, Florence. And as I heard some of the older people in our community refer to Hurricane Florence, they said, that's the biggest freshet I've ever witnessed. And I said, that's what it is. That's the kind of flood that we're talking about coming down the rivers because of rainfall above. At the turn of the 20th century, a series of weather events, hurricanes that we know about, droughts that we can understand for any farmer, even a farmer that was flooding the rice field with fresh water, 
had to be careful because what happens to our river water during a drought? It gets saltier and saltier and saltier. Sometimes you'll make coffee this summer and you go, <laughs> because even our number four in the nation water supply here on the Waccamaw Neck sometimes gets infiltrated with salt. Think about the challenges already and then think about year after year, a hurricane, a drought, or a freshet. And so by 1910, the last successful rice crop was harvested. They planted in 1911, but the last successful harvest on the Waccamaw Neck was 1910. But also by that time, 1905, a New York millionaire born in South Carolina purchases 16,000 acres at the southern tip of the Waccamaw Neck for use as his own, his family's, winter duck hunting retreat, Bernard Baruch. 1906, just one year later, North Carolina born but Baltimore millionaire Isaac Emerson purchases about seven plantations exactly north on the Waccamaw Neck, seven contiguous plantations just up from Hobcaw Barony, renames those seven Arcadia, and within a few years his daughter marries Alfred Gwynne Vanderbilt, and they have a son named George Vanderbilt, and George's great-grandchildren, excuse me, grandchildren own the property jointly today, Arcadia Plantation. So this massive change, not only in 1865, but this massive change beginning with hunt clubs and people from off coming to hunt our ducks. And there were no game laws then, a hundred ducks per day and deer and wild turkeys. And yet, as we often say, but it meant jobs. Former plantation owners, holding on for several generations, sold to many northerners, but then they became the superintendent. They became the caretaker. They became hunting guides. Sometimes superintendent of the hounds, superintendent of the horses, superintendent of the woods, and then a crew chief for the freed slaves, their children and grandchildren who were still living on the plantations. The biggest question we would get from school groups so often is, if I were set free, I wouldn't stay here. Where would you go? 1865, 1866, even 1905, 1906. Well, I'd move to Georgetown. Where are you going to live? What are you going to eat? And we knew of a case where a man, Ben Carr, went to Georgetown, got a job about 1910, got a job off the plantation, got a job at Atlantic Coast Lumber Company, the largest lumber company in the world located in Georgetown. A spur was built at the turn of the um, late 19th century in order to run off the main line, get to the lumber mill and take lumber inland and north and south on the railroad. Well, Ben Carr leaves the plantation, gets a job with the lumber company. He comes home to tell his wife in their former slave cabin, no electricity, no plumbing, and she's not very excited. She goes, well, that's great you got a job, but where are you going to live? He goes, I'll be right back. So he journeys back to Georgetown and, and finds a room in a house where his family of eight could live. 
And he comes back to the former slave cabin on the plantation and said, I got a job, I got us a place to live. And she said, well, that's great, but what are we going to eat? Because they don't have enough room to have a vegetable garden. They don't have enough room to raise hogs or chickens. And they're not going to be as many raccoons, maybe as many squirrels in a city. There are always too many squirrels, in my opinion. But imagine the advantage of having a roof over your head and a guarantee of food, whether it's oysters, clams, fish, or woods like raccoons, squirrels, rabbits, and so on. Imagine answering that question, understanding that for generations, former owners and their families, as well as freed slaves and their descendants continued living on these plantations because their skills and their knowledge were needed as these northerners from off purchased so many of these Waccamawneck plantations. There are some exceptions. Some stayed in the hands of southerners, of Georgetown County residents, of Waccamawneck residents. But overall, most of them became hunting retreats for the north. And when I think of Litchfield Plantation, I think of Dr. and Mrs. Norris, originally from the Philadelphia area. More recently, they had founded a hospital in Rutherfordton, North Carolina. And they moved to the Waccamaw Neck. They restored Litchfield Plantation. They restored the outbuildings. They, they also embraced All Saints Church and bought old plantation brick from Waverly and um, perhaps portions of... Willbrook, in addition to what they found at Litchfield, and built the beautiful brick wall around the cemetery at All Saints. Mrs. Norris, the wrought iron gates with the W, the last name in her family, not necessarily All Saints Waccamaw. And when Dr. and Mrs. Norris saw a need in this community, they established it. This Philadelphia couple built a doctor's office on what was then... Um, an unnamed Shell Road. Today you know it as Martin Luther King Road, but from the Seashore Highway back toward the plantation, that road was the site of a hospital, as many locals began to call it. It was open to white and black, but primarily blacks in the 1920s and 30s for about a 10-year span, and the road was renamed Hospital Road. Over and over, these northern owners in 1905, 1906, not only provided jobs, but also began to plant rice once again, not necessarily for harvest, but to attract the ducks. But think of the labor that was required for everything they were doing, and if that wasn't enough, then they reached out and did more. They helped rebuild our churches, literally and figuratively, and also their change in this area by 1930, some of the last transactions, land transactions, occurred. And one of the last couples to buy property on the Waccamawneck was Archer and Anna Hyatt Huntington. In 1930, they visited at Arcadia, observed the beautiful formal gardens at Arcadia, and were influenced, we now believe, in some part as they began to create Brook Green Gardens, four plantations combined and open to the public in 1931. And according to their vision statement, the Huntingtons hoped that they could create a place where art and nature could be appreciated for those people that might not ever make it to New York to enjoy that public art, 
much less to Charleston. And as an adult, just a few years ago, about 2013, I finally made it to New York. You know, it's just finances. There's no re- I would have loved to have gone earlier, but my husband and, and younger son and I went to New York. And at some point while we were there for a long weekend, we went to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. We separated and went different directions, and we agreed to meet back at the atrium. And it was about 4 o'clock. It was getting dark in New York City. Thanksgiving weekend at 4 o'clock. That was my first big comeuppance. But then as I realized I was standing in the atrium at the Museum of Art, I began to notice all of this sculpture. And I started reading the exhibit labels. And I was like, oh, that's Anna Hyatt Huntington. And I read the next one. I'm like, oh, that's Paul Manship. I've seen his work at Brook Green Gardens. And every sculptor that I knew and recognized, I realized I had been one of those people for whom Brook Green Gardens had been established. For people that might not ever really make it to New York, much less to Charleston. It was also about that year that Brook Green was undergoing a great number of changes and returned to its original core mission that the Huntingtons had established. It's easy to think about the contributions that the Huntingtons made to our area purchasing property from the river to the sea as all of the plantations once stretched from the river to the sea. And right here at Pauley's Island, plantation owners throughout the 19th century, early 20th century, the property lines extended at Pauley's to the edge of the marsh, to this side of the marsh. Their idea of going to the seashore was going to the edge of the marsh. And seeing that long, narrow strip of sand in the distance. Best documentation, the best research shows there were no beach houses over on Pauley's Island. There were at North Island. There were at Debidu Island. Not before 1822. And I've asked Dr. Carrie Mock, Dr. Mock, this is Lee again. Why do you tell me a little bit about the barrier islands on the coast in 1822? You know, that was the year of the big storm where so much erosion occurred at North Island, so much so they didn't rebuild the village. Debbie Dude lost a lot of houses. It eroded there as well, but what's the opposite of erosion? Accretion. In 1822, that big storm built up Pauley's Island enough for there to be houses considered. They looked out at that narrow strip of sand and said, it's not so narrow anymore. I bet we could dismantle these houses and take them over there. And also by the 20th century, more and more South Carolinians were beginning to travel, but inland from Georgetown, inland from Florence or Marion to come to the seashore. The biggest change between Atlantic Coast Lumber Company that we mentioned late 19th century until the Great Depression. The Great Depression, the lumber company closes. But something really good happens then that changes the economy, changes the culture. But good. You have to look at the good and the bad. The Waccamaw Neck was forever changed when a bridge was built across Winyah Bay to the mainland. And no matter where you're from, even Indiana, a bridge changes the culture. Right, Tom? Indiana. The bridge connecting Georgetown and Charleston was the last connection on the New York to Miami Highway. A swing bridge. You can call it a drawbridge, but it technically swung open. 
the swing bridge built, opened in July 1935, and built, and the spot it is, even today, at the recommendation of Bernard Baruch, who knew that the original plan was to more or less pave the old King's Highway that connected Boston and New York and Charleston. And as Bernard Baruch got wind of that idea in the 1920s, he began to talk to some of his friends in Washington, D.C. as an advisor to all the presidents, beginning with Woodrow Wilson, right on through Kennedy. He often had ideas that other people hadn't thought of. His idea was not, preserve my property. I don't want U.S. 17 going straight through the middle of my 16,000 acres, not in my backyard. No, he simply said, if you create U.S. 17, why don't you curve along my north boundary? I'll give you land for use as a bridge, and that way that federal highway will go through Georgetown rather than around it. We all want to bypass now. But in the midst of the Great Depression, think about what it meant to Georgetown Right away, filling stations. Raise your hand if you still say filling station. I have to correct myself. Gas station, convenience store. I still say 7-Eleven sometimes. Won't stop at the 7-Eleven and get a cold Coca-Cola. U.S. 17, restaurants, motor courts, filling stations. And within a year, 1936, international paper decides it will locate in Georgetown and by World War II international paper becomes the largest paper mill in the world according to IP but still what made them so rich something called government contracts the paper mill was in high production during the war years for the cardboard boxes they made to ship rations all over the world for the military the paper mill continued to employ thousands of individuals. More and more people left the Waccamaw black and white, in order to work. If they were ordinary citizens without a plantation in their family history, perhaps they had been making a living, serving as hunting guides, hunting and fishing, doing farming, operating a few stores, particularly with the uptick, Highway 17, there was word that we would have more and more tourism traffic. But other heads of households knew that they needed to get a job at International Paper, and many of them moved on to Georgetown rather than commuting. When the bridge opened in 1935, it changed the culture. And I loved thinking about how many years the Waccamaw Neck, in essence, lay fallow. It wasn't until a few years ago that someone said, I can't believe the property taxes on the Waccamaw Neck. We are carrying the rest of the county. It's not fair. And our historian, author, researcher, Alberta, Lashcott Quattlebaum said in a public lecture, well, it's only fair because for 200 years they've been carrying us. Think about the end of rice cultivation as we know it and all those years that we were poor and we were sandy and we were hot and we didn't have that many jobs. The Waccamaw Neck, until U.S. 17 opened, was not experiencing the kind of experience you know of now. 1938, the hammock shops opened. One building. One building. And Mr. Lashcott, um, Doc Lashcott's father, decided that they would sell camellias and azaleas and shrimp and hammocks. 
And Mrs. Lashcott, according to her daughter, said, hmm, that's a good idea. And we're catering to the tourist trade, New York to Miami. How many azaleas do you think they want to put in the trunk of their 1938 car? Let me, let me go shopping in Mount Pleasant and buy some sweet grass baskets. Let me go up to Seagrove, North Carolina and buy some pottery. Let me go to the mountains of North Carolina and buy some braided rugs. So she began to put in a number of things that, um, that made her son realize it was really my mama that had the good idea about the hammock shop, 1938. New stores, Lashcott store. Marlowe's store, over and over, small stores like Parker's store that catered especially not to the tourist trade, but to those residents. The old Parker store, I hate to say it, but it's about where Sonic is located today. That old white building picked up and moved to the island shops at Pauly's Island. We may get a historic marker one day. But think of the filling stations, think of the rise of the automobile, think of the travel, and imagine after World War II, how many more people could afford a car. Think about post-World War II as Myrtle Beach grew up as a tourist destination, as tourism grew in the state of South Carolina, as Myrtle Beach became the leader in retired golfers coming in the winter for vacation. And then here on the Waccamaw Neck, there were investors that said, you know what, we should have a golf course down here. And the first golf course in this area was what we think of at Hagley. I can't remember the name of it right now. Is it Premier? It used to be Seagull. There you go. You're showing your age now. And I still say Seagull Motel. Seagull Motel. Pr not Premier. What's the name? of Founders Club, thank you, not a letter P, the Founders Club. That was the first golf course in this area. And then one by one, even before Hugo, gated communities based on a golf course, as you know, began to build. One of the first gated communities was Pauly's Plantation. And Pauly's Plantation was a new name. Before that, it had been called Boggy Branch Plantation. What do you think the elevation is like in that part of the property? <laughs> But Boggy Branch was a late 20th century, or actually early 20th century name because a lumberman in Georgetown decided to purchase the property so he could, what with the new engines and new mills in town, he needed to retire his mules. And every now and then, if I'm asked to speak at Polly's Plantation, it's so much fun to say that the property is still serving its earlier purpose, retired mules. <laughs> you know, sometimes you just can't resist, but I'm glad y'all laughed. Any of y'all live at Polly's Plantation? But before it was called Boggy Branch, it was a part of Hagley. It ran from the river to the sea. Geography over and over, weather over and over, the economy, but also what happened with Hurricane Hugo in 1989, it became the dividing line for people that were here before Hugo and people that were here after Hugo. And that dividing line became deep and it became wide, not just because it was a disastrous event on September 22nd, 1989. It always stops me in my tracks when somebody says, yeah, what year was Hugo? It's like, 
I mean, it'd be like a World War II veteran. And somebody said, when did World War II end? You're like, how could you not know that? But if you were here and living here at the time, September 22nd, five minutes after midnight, 1989. But what happened a little bit before, but especially after Hurricane Hugo, and after every disaster, whether it's Florida, whether it's a fire in Chicago, people build back, and they build back bigger and hopefully better, but they sure do build. So Hugo became not only this way of telling time and experiencing what hurricanes can really do. Hugo was the first, y'all know, since Hazel in 54 that a lot of people had experienced. But it also meant that we had a lot of people moving here and moving here quickly and suddenly and in large numbers. And that's one of the reasons for that divide because a lot of the people that were moving here Y'all, some of you, moved because of the gated communities, protecting real estate values, property values. You moved because it was nice weather in the winter. We didn't say a word about summer, did we? I like it when they give the mean annual temperature. What does that mean? What does that mean? The mean annual temperature. 80 degrees. Woohoo! No, it's not. It's only 82 days, right? <laughs> the golf was attractive. Coastal Carolina University's non-credit short courses, lifelong learning was attractive. We have live theater in Conway. We have live theater in Georgetown. We had more and more things for people to do during those active retirement years. It's a good 10, 20 years. And also, the change meant that a lot of people that had lived here since 1940, 1920, 1905, much less 1755, began to get marginalized. Many of them lost their voices to more overpowering voices calling for paved roads and street lights and a hospital and doctor's offices. And if you're from here, let's admit it, it's been nice to have a full-size grocery store at Polly's Island. If you go to the doctor, it's nice to have a doctor here and not have to go to Charleston. We did not even have a hospital in this community until 1950. The Georgetown County Memorial Hospital built in 1950. We had some medical um, clinics and we had a black woman who ran a hospital and she would admit whites if they needed to go, but only a few whites went to her hospital, 1950. And then all of a sudden, we had a second hospital. All of a sudden, we had the county's largest employer, Tidelands Hospital. Well, guess who it used to be? International paper. And then it was the school district. And then it became the hospital and all of its associated offices. Um, Tidelands Hospital today, our county's largest employer. You're not from here, are you? No, but I got here as fast as I could, and I like the dirt roads. I like the dark nights where I can see the stars and the space station and a lunar eclipse. I like it that there's not much traffic. Come on, admit it. When you first came, when you first visited, there wasn't a lot of traffic. And then all of a sudden, at Easter, you're like, oh, wait. Where did all these cars come from? Well, those are those visitors that are going to be living here 10 or 15 years from now because it's not as much traffic as compared to Philadelphia, 
New York City, places in New Jersey, New Hampshire even. The same things that attracted so many of us. I grew up in Columbia. I came and stayed a week every summer at my cousin's beach house. I could not imagine how exciting it would be to work in a museum in this area and to live at Pauley's Island. And when I came and visited Hobcall, they had just opened the education center. I said, y'all got any jobs? And they said, no, we just opened. We got one and a half people, and that's all we need for. <laughs> well, I said, I could be the other half. I'm 4'10 and 3 quarters. But I wore them down. I kept, I kept insisting, and they hired me on April Fool's Day <laughs> that, following, that following semester. My rent was $150 a month. I had to work two jobs to support and pay my rent. I worked at the Anchor Inn restaurant in Merle's Inlet. And it was the best thing that could ever be. As I worked at Hobcall, I related a lot to stores, businesses, people who lived in Georgetown. I lived on the island across the street from Frank and Faye Marlowe who introduced me to everybody, either at home on the island or in their store on US 17. And then I worked nights at the Anchor Inn in Merle's Inlet. I'd never had a waitress job, so I couldn't get one. I was a kitchen helper, waitress helper in the kitchen. Best place I could ever be placed. African-American cooks, African-American men bringing in oysters and fish, as well as other Merle's Inlet natives from whom I could learn about that end, the walk of my neck. And as I've lived here only since 1984, I understand how much change has taken place. I can only imagine if I was born here, how much change I would have seen. Steel mill opening in 1969, employing blacks and whites, promoting them according to their age and ability. The school district growing exponentially. And then our oldest library in the nation, according to some research, enlarges and goes from a tiny main branch in an old jail to a larger main branch. And then by 1990, just for me and for my new children, a Waccamaw Neck Branch Library. The Waccamaw Neck began to grow exponentially after Hugo, but there was always change, and there were always natives, and there were always newcomers. And change is always going to occur. We have an opportunity to control change, whether it's planning and zoning, whether it's public hearings, whether it's learning about changes that are occurring and becoming involved. And sometimes it's simply being acquiescent to the good things about change. Nothing is going to stay the same. How many times have you heard, oh, I just wish Pauly's Island could stay the same. I wish Pauly's could stay as it was. Well, would that be 1936 when we had a filling station? across from the old Lafayette Pavilion. We had underground tanks on the island and a convenience store on the island. Would it be the year that we had the pavilion that was so loud people set it on fire? <laughs> what year would you pick if you were going to keep the Waccamaw Neck the same? Would it be the year you had to go all the way to Georgetown to, to a full grocery store? You had to go all the way to MUSC in Charleston or McLeod Infirmary in Florence because we had no medical facilities. 
Change can be very good as long as you are aware of change, as long as you think about the good, and if there is bad change on its way, to be involved. Every one of us, every day, is asked to make a change, whether it's in our bodies. Ooh, I just can't do what I used to do. I'm going to have to hire a lawn boy. Boy, I just hired a young man to mow my yard. I thought I could do it, but I can't, and it's okay. I had to change that way of thinking, and I'm not even changing the oil in my car anymore. I'm letting Ford do that for me. Change is inevitable. Jesus Christ was born, and as he observed as a 20- and 30-year-old certain things that were going on, he called for change. He called for change. Get that ox out of the ditch. Over and over, change can be good. If we acknowledge it, if we can help um, form it, if we can help, because it's going to happen with you or without you. We get to a certain point in our lives, too, and we know ourselves better than anyone. And sometimes, personally, we need to make a change, whether it's where we're living, whether it's what we enjoy in our leisure time, whether you're considering retirement. As we age, our interests change, whether you're 20, becoming 30, whether you're 30, becoming 40. As we change, our interests change, and it's okay. Once we figure out what were we put on this earth to do, what makes me happy, what's good for other people around me, and sometimes it's simply your own Christian walk of faith. What do I need to do? Do I need to make a change, and how good will it be? How good will it be for my community? And if you live here now, what will your legacy be? A hundred years from now, when my children and grandchildren, my descendants, are giving a little talk on a Saturday night, what will they say about the natives and the newcomers that lived on the Waccamaw in the 21st century? What will they say about the churches that these residents attended? The good that was contributed by retirees, by young families, by employees as well as those seeking leisure. What will your legacy be as you change and grow up until the day we all die? My husband died a year and a half ago. That's why I couldn't come when I was first invited. My husband was a Santee Cooper man. He wasn't an engineer. He was an area service representative, and he was in charge of the Waccamaw Neck. From Brook Green to Hobcaw, he knew every dirt road, he knew every person that lived down in the middle of nowhere. And he often talked about change. And I was just shocked when I would hear his stories. And yet he was a newcomer in 1973. And he watched the Waccamaw Neck change after Hugo. He worked before and after Hugo. I was on Polly's Island Town Council before and after Hugo. But you often think, not only think positively... But what, what can I do to change personally and what can I do to help my community change for the better, better? And that's the thing that's in front of all of us every day as we wake up. What can I do to make it a better world for me and for my community? And that's your challenge, isn't it? As you leave today, that's your challenge. What do I need to do to change and be the person that Jesus Christ intended me to be? I hope that leaves you with as many questions 
as answers, and I promise we could have a Q&A, and I'm glad to answer questions when you're ready. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, yes. Boundary lines, good question. Yeah. Um, the county line on the north end, and the county line has everything to do with geography because it's about the last evidence of enough tidal push for rice cultivation. So just north of Wachesaw is the county line, and it goes straight on through Garden City Beach all the way down to the southern tip of the Waccabon Neck. Somebody the other day asked me what I considered the boundary lines for Pauly's Island. I said, well, you know where Moe's Barbecue is? <laughs> and you know where Hog Heaven is? And then we all started laughing because we realized far too many of our landmarks are food. <laughs> you know, turn left at McDonald's to get to Waverly Road. But roughly, the county line, which is about where, um, it's, of course, north of Wachesaw, but the county line is about, it's awful to say, it's about where Goodwill is. And CVS, that turn 707, that, that road comes um, across the highway, the bypass, and we call it Sunnyside Road, and it runs right into the creek, so to speak, at Sunnyside at Merle's Inlet. So that's the dividing line. That's what we consider the Waccamaw Neck. But that's a good question. And again, All Saints Parish originally went all the way up to the North Carolina line, and then by the early 20th century, that boundary line, All Saints became the Waccamaw Neck Parish from that area down to the southern tip of Hog Call Barony. Good question. Is there something about the Orie Georgetown County line? Yes, the two counties, Georgetown and Orie County. Good French Huguenot name, depending on how new you are. There's no H. Orie. 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 And when the Myrtle Beach Airport decided to reconfigure, they also considered changing their name. There was a lot of conversation since it was going to be an international airport, um, at least national. They said, we better just call it the Myrtle Beach Airport to avoid any mispronunciations. <laughs> but it's a very prominent French Huguenot, or as we should say, Huguenot, last name. Peter Orie is one of the most famous fought with George Washington, and the county is named in honor of General Peter Ori. Ori. Yes, sir. Yes. Well, and you know, the British did more damage during the Revolutionary War to our area, particularly Georgetown and its port, than the Civil War did. Um, there was damage. There was raiding of plantations during the Civil War. But Peter Ori owned a portion of what we think of as Dover and Belle Isle. And then also Peter Ori took extraordinary notes and journal entries of his summer home on North Island. And that book has been published, that journal, that research has been published um, through Coastal Carolina University. And it's a great 
um, account. I believe that we have it at the library and the opportunity to read what his thoughts were about staying out on the beach from April to October, um, the interchange with enslaved laborers bringing food and newspapers. Think about how valuable newspapers were. And also a church and a school that was on North Island that General Ori helped supervise. I'm sorry. North Island is a barrier island that is the, um, at the entrance of the mouth of Winyah Bay. So if you think about the islands themselves, the, tight, the barrier islands, Pauly's Island, Debidu Island, which includes Prince George Development, Debidu Colony Club, and two miles of undeveloped beach belonging to Hobcaw Barony. And just south of Debidu Island is North Island, the mouth of Winyah Bay, and guess what the next island is called? South Island. <laughs> North Island and South Island at the mouth of Winyah Bay. North Island, South Island, and Cat Island are today all owned by the state of South Carolina because a gift, because of a gift from, by Tom Yawkey, the owner of a little old baseball team. Maybe you've heard of it. Boston Red Sox. And I told you I grew up in Columbia, and we were all Atlanta Braves fans. Well, you know, it was the only Southern pro team, right, for years and years and years. Everybody was an Atlanta Braves fan. My dad played, foot, I mean, played baseball for Carolina. We were Atlanta Braves fans. I moved down here in 1984, and everybody's got Bo Sox hats on. Boston. I just didn't get it. That's Yankee, right? That's Yankee. And, of course, it was because of Tom Yawkey's ownership throughout his lifetime of a hunting retreat that makes up the majority of those three islands, North Island, South Island, and Cat Island, all within our Georgetown County boundaries. They do regular tours at the Yawkey Wildlife Center. Raise your hand if you've been on that tour at Yawkey. Would you recommend it to others? It's a great way to understand history. Have you been to Hopsawee Plantation? Raise your hand. Another important tour to take, an important place to visit, and own and own. There's so many places that may be privately owned but are shared to the general public with regular tours and programs. Private property like Arcadia Plantation that sometimes is available once a year or a few times a year through other public programming on private property. And then the amazing protection, again, through newcomers, Bernard Baruch, the first, but it was his daughter, Belle Baruch, whom you know, preserved 16,000 acres in perpetuity. A private foundation owns it. Carolina and Clemson, Francis Marion and Coastal are there doing research, privately owned. Adjacent to that, the Yawkey Wildlife Center, state-owned property. South of that, the Santee Coastal Reserve, state property. South of that, the Cape Romaine National Wildlife Refuge out from McClellanville and one more Capers Island on the way to Charleston. 66 miles of protected shoreline roughly from Georgetown to Charleston, all of it connected to northern ownership at one time. Somebody must have asked them, what will your legacy be? Because didn't that turn out well? All of it offers some form of public access. So you got a lot of homework to do, don't you? A lot of places to go and people to see. And maybe even tonight you got places to go. You, you miss the preakness. i got to tell you, you miss the preakness. <laughs> Whoa! Thank you. Thank you.
good to see you.